0: You are listening to Scotland's Ear to the Ground, the podcast that brings you interviews with Scotland's finest composers.
1: Your hosts are Aileen Sweeney and Ben Eames.
0: Gareth Williams is a composer and songwriter making work that ranges from opera, theatre and songwriting to chamber and orchestral music. His compositions seek to find new relationships, participants, collaborators and audiences for new opera, music theatre and song to shed light on stories and communities that have been overlooked and to explore ideas of vulnerability and vocal writing. He has created three award-winning operas for Noise Opera since 2012 each one bringing a new collaborator to the genre, from patrons of Glasgow's oldest bar, the Shetland fiddler Chris Stout and the Scottish indie band Admiral Fallow. Gareth has recently written Rubble with librettist Johnny McKnight, a new opera for Scottish Opera, which is being premiered in July 2022, which we'll hear more about today. So, how's it going?
2: Very well. Nice to see you again and nice to meet you, Ben.
0: (laughs) So rehearsals are underway for the premiere of Rubble next month, which is very exciting. Can you give us an overview of the synopsis?
2: I'll try. I'll <laughs> really try. And it's, it's, it's off. this is where I should turn to Johnny McKnight should be sitting on my left for, for, for the writer to do the introduction into the libretto because it's, I find that, that quite hard to set up a story. And also, like, trigger warnings abound. Now, this is a very dark story explores some 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 difficult issues and so so let me go back to how it came about so i had this idea that this must have been just after brexit referendum what 2016 something like that um, there was something about that division of the vote. see, it's getting heavy very fast, guys, isn't it? Um, sorry. <laughs> um, so there is something about that division. Of the vote. It felt like there was young people who'd voted for one thing, and there was older people who'd voted for another. Now, without going into too much analysis of that, it did feel like there was something of a divide uh, in, in society, ideologically and across age and geography and all those things. That led me to think about a short story by Graham Greene, because, you know, as you do. And there's a story <laughs> called the, the, the Destructors. So it's about A group of young people who, they're in a street in London where there's only one house still standing just after the Blitz and in this old house lives an old man and one day, while the old man is out, the children go round and they destroy his house. They just, they they smash all his bric-a-brac, they rip out the pipes, they tear his house down until it falls into a pile of rubble and ash. And I thought that was really interesting. I think especially because in the last line of the story you realise it's just for a joke. There's no point to it. It's just a sort of nihilism. And I thought those young people are really savage, dark creatures, and I wanted them... I wanted to spend time with characters like that. I think that's really interesting. So I went and talked to Jean at Scottish Opera and, and asked, is this something I could perhaps develop with their young chorus? So they have a young chorus there of, of about 30 singers, I think, from between about 18 and 23. And I really wanted to work with Johnny McKnight again. Now, Johnny and I have worked together on previous shows. So what happens at the point then is I just give Johnny this brain dump, this this notion of of Graham Greene's story, this notion of working with this group of young people and this notion of or or vengeance or those kinds of things. And then Johnny goes away and comes back with something that's nothing like that whatsoever. In a sense, Although there is a little kernel of, of darkness and wickedness in the whole thing. Um, we ended up with a libretto. Now, we had a libretto reading. I remember this vividly. It was Valentine's Day 2020. that so We had a, a reading of the libretto. The libretto was sort of signed off that day, and we read through it uh, in Glasgow. And as I drove home, I crashed my car. I mean, properly wrote it off. Because it's it was such a, a crazy libretto. Uh, really distressing, really difficult, really challenging. And I, I was just... Preoccupied, driving home, wondering how on earth I was going to do this. So, I mean, on, on many levels, yeah, thank you, thank you, Johnny. Um, this libretto was set in a Glaswegian children's care home in the 80s. And Johnny had been, like, reading up and, and, and listening to and getting very angry by some of the reports that were coming out about abuse, about neglect, about sexual abuse, things like that that were happening to these very vulnerable young people in care homes. I mean, it's, it's a story, sadly, that gets repeated everywhere, but there was something very specifically... Uh, Glasgow about this particular story. So that's where this story is set. Now there is light with that darkness but that's a very dark heart for this piece. Around that we have a group of young people. We have two main characters called Charlie and Jude. The opera starts the day Charlie comes to the care home. Jude joins a few weeks later and they notice something isn't right here. And together these young people kind of collect and, and just demonstrate the kind of incredible resilience and Unity of purpose that young people in care often show, and they 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 get together and they stop this thing happening, and they take the story into their own hands with agency, and they basically march out that front door. Um, that's pretty much the story. As you say, it, it's it's difficult, it's challenging, but there are moments of light, there are real chinks of light to get through, and as I say, it all comes down to being about resilience in the face of neglect and abuse. And also, love, the big L word.
1: Um, could you tell us uh, a little bit more about the collaborative process you have with Johnny McKnight?
2: Well, yeah, we we got to get into it. Do, do you guys, uh, have you ever seen any of Johnny's work? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's, yeah. he's a theatre legend and, and like a sort of, um, we all just love Johnny, and um, You know, he he writes the Pantos at the Tron. He's he's been the Dame down there. He writes a lot for television. He's currently working on a show down in the West End in London. He just has this this wonderful portfolio of of, of ideas and things. So Johnny and I worked together. 2012, we did our first opera. Now, this is a similar story. I think Sound Festival and Scottish Opera had commissioned us to do something for a site-specific piece up in up in Aberdeenshire. And we chose um, Fraserborough Lighthouse as the site where we'd like to make an opera. So immediately, you, you can't fit very many people in a lighthouse, so we immediately had to split the show into... Half the people would go to the lighthouse, half would go to a nearby cafe, and then they would swap. So we had this sort of double-header show that you could, it didn't matter what order you saw it in, it still kind of worked. I, once again, working with Johnny, I expected something lovely about boats and seagulls and the crashing of the wind and maybe some buried treasure and no I got something really dark and really scary uh, and also like a, a strange piece where we had this um, country radio station in the cafe and a baritone and string trio in the in the lighthouse and over the course of that opera the two things started to entangle and talk to each other and we ended up with just some really peculiar moments where we had a disembodied voice talking through the radio. That was our baritone. And over in the lighthouse, the radio would suddenly pop on and speak to the to the singer and, and make the mood get darker and darker and darker. So this is what happens when, when you work with Johnny. You just don't quite know how you're going to untangle what he gives you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds like amazing. Amazing show. Wish you could have seen that.
2: <laughs> that was, I, I honestly being up in the top of the lighthouse, listening to like baritone singing with a string trio down the tube of the lighthouse on a night edge, and it really was just a beautiful kind of around about Halloween time. So, I mean, I think one of the most beautiful things I've I've ever been at in terms, you know, I was like, oh, I've made this thing, and wow, it's in a lighthouse, <laughs> and it's it's um, yeah, no, it stays with me as one of my favourite things I've ever done.
0: You've done quite a lot of these site specific works. Um, you know, the the Sloane's opera springs to mind, um, the Admiral Fallow in the distilleries. How do these come about and how does that differ to you if you're writing something that's gonna to have to be performed in lots of different venues, you know, when you've got something so specific to work with?
2: Yeah, I mean I I guess it's all about where ideas come from as well and, and what you respond to. When I'm writing an opera, I sort of like to problematize something and change one thing. And, and I think for many years, that one thing, even just by changing venue, you change everything about the, the genre and the people who are going to come and see it and the people that you work with to make that piece. Scotland's not a country of a colossal amount of opera houses, but we do have these beautiful churches and barns and underground bunkers and lighthouses and church halls and community centres and libraries. I love those spaces, and, and, and those spaces are, are always where I, I want to be. You know, and I want to make stuff yeah. that happens there because it's quite thrilling to do that.
0: Yeah, Totally. So, this piece, Rubble, was written during lockdown. How, how did that affect the writing process for you, if at all?
2: So, in 2020, so just as I said, about a month after that that libretto reading, uh, basically, was the beginning of lockdown. So, I was left with that really dark libretto, uh, and I had a, a kind of basement studio. So, I was going down into a basement every day to, to write that piece. And yeah, and also, like, like, and the world seemed to be going to hell in a handbag. And it was a strange time. And I I think something happened though that because there was a pause button, just whatever creative activity you were at when that pause button kicked in, you just sort of I just stayed there, exactly there, and sort of emerged out the other side. With there was sort of two projects I was working on, you know, both of them still exactly where it was just chipping away at them daily basis. The rubble should have happened a year ago, but was delayed for a year. So it has meant you know, you know how deadlines are. You just continue to work right up to the deadline. So I have carried the piece with me a little bit longer. In terms of, I talked a little bit about how it's haunted, but even the orchestration, there's no winds, and that was a hangover from some early just worries that perhaps wind instruments weren't going to be, you know, like like as as functional as soon as. So it's just for strings, piano, percussion, and accordion because I love accordions. Yeah, I, I imagine there's a mutual a mutual friend there for you too. Um, so. So even that kind of is stitched into the fabric. And, and there's a little bit of, for me, a little bit of sorrow in that, a little bit of sadness, a little bit of melancholy, the fact that that those decisions are st- are still kind of stitched into the structure of the piece. Um, I wanted to do a lot of um, workshops. There was going to be opportunities to get together because this chorus, this fabulous chorus, the Connect course, I mean, they're, gr- they're just so amazing. They meet regularly and they work through stuff. So there would have been regular check-ins with them, and with, with Chris Gray and stuff to try things out. So I couldn't do that so much. So I did sit down at the piano and, and recorded myself singing quite a lot of the, 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 the scenes, you know, very, very basically. But just to give uh, Roxana, Haynes, the director, and, and Johnny a heads up and Chris a heads up of, of how the piece was kind of working. And actually, I really, I loved that. I loved that. That was a nice way to be able to share stuff from from a time which didn't feel like you could share very much
3: we might by them puffing away in your ear They think they got you trapped but you're no longer even back the sheets. You're getting far from the streets. Higher and higher you so One of them cocktails out of coconuts Then you're sipping on rum And the sun's beating down On your skin And you begin school at my frosties and smile at my mom. cause all I wanted was quiet all I wanted was calm in the silence I could pretend that last night didn't happen that last night didn't happen and the night before to be low is only man You think you're better off on your
0: it's a really beautiful recording as well um really enjoyed really enjoyed listening to it so it was very much at the piano you singing away and then fleshing it out from there sort of orchestrating it from there
2: i pretty much only react to text musically i like i think i've realized over the years that that's okay as well that i that i don't and i think you know i still do write some instrumental music but really like that that feels like a, a different kind of itch to scratch for me that's something else and I don't get a lot of ideas for instrumental music now and again they come but for the most part I react to text and story and narrative characters plot that really tickles me and I just want to invest in that so my way when I get a libretto is just to, to read that libretto again and again and again and again and to scribble on it and to and to uh, to stroke things out and to talk back to Johnny and say can we can we do something else here? So forth. And just kick it around. And it sits on my piano for months and, and, and I do work through it very, very basically and stitch a little skeleton through the thing. Um, jump ahead. So I, kn- I know where we're getting to, where we've been. And I, like having a libretto is a gift for a composer because you just have this roadmap, you know, and, and there is that kind of, ah, where was I? Ah, I was here which can be harder when you're when you're trying to work on a, on a concerto or, or a string quartet or something where you're like, why, why am I here? So th- it takes away that why am I here moment and you're like, ah, because this character has to say this to this character.
1: So we'd love to talk about some of your previous work. In 2016, you wrote Rocking Horse Winner, which was adapted from a short story by D.H. Lawrence by librettist Anna Chatterin. Uh, can you tell us about this opera?
2: So I have a sort of red-faced pride of, of you know, uh, lots of things that I've made and stuff. And it is that kind of, oh, uh, you know, if I could do it again now, I'd do it differently. I feel, I don't really listen back to anything. But there's a couple of things I, I go, oh, yeah, and I'm I'm proud of that piece. And it, it comes back regularly. It, it premiered in Toronto and then it was in New York. And I think it's due to come back in Toronto soon. And it and it's one of the rare things amongst my back catalogue is that it's been recorded. And I, I didn't chase any recordings. I just sort of went from live site-responsive gig to live site-responsive gig for so many years. And, and I it's it's been nice to actually go, oh, look, let's actually record something and, and, and hang on to it for a change. So I'm glad it was Rocking Horse that happened to. Rocking Horse winner, as you said, it's a short story by D.H. Lawrence. Um, Anna Chatterton and I sort of worked on that. Um, it's about a young boy who when he gets on his rocking horse, can predict the winner of the next horse race. And so Paul rides his rocking horse, he can predict the next winner. um, They go, they put money on it, um, they win lots of money, but the house that he lives in keeps whispering, we need more money, we need more money, we need more money, we need more money. And then he has to go again and it gets more frenzied and then he starts to lose races and then he keeps going and he keeps going and he keeps going until he dies. That's Rockin' Horse Winner. Inevitability, like, right through the whole thing, which, and I love Ev, inevitability. And, and there's a relationship between Paul and his mother that I found really intriguing and wanted to sort of investigate over the over that period. So that's Rockin' Horse Winner. It was premiered the same day as a, as a piece I made called 306 Dawn, which was um, in a barn in Perth. It was another site-specific work with National Theatre Scotland. And that premiered at dawn. Um, I think around 3.34am 4, 4 on that particular time of year and then I went to the airport and I flew to Toronto and I saw the premiere of Rockin' Horse Winner, and I always I, th- I thought it would be like some kind of exciting Phil Collins uh, kind of adventure where but it, it was just really it was one of the most gruesome days of my life where I was awake for 36 <laughs> hours and just had constant sickening show nerves for, for, for an entire kind of 30 hour window but I, I sort of I'd like to say I remember it fondly but it's just this sort of haze i I just sort of did this thing but so it was nice i'm glad i got to see rocking horse a couple more times because i can remember it now
0: yeah that sounds quite badass that's that's quite impressive to be fair
2: i'd like to say that happens all the time but it really doesn't (laughs) but it was this this one occasion where i got to be in a barn in perth and a theater in toronto in the same day
0: so you've mentioned before that you love exploring the relationship between diegetic and non diegetic sounds in opera for listeners who don't know, could you give a brief exploration of these concepts and give examples of how you include them in your work?
2: I guess I don't have a definitive description, I'll, uh, but this is just how, how it works for me. But diegetic sound is the sound from that world, isn't it? So it's very, very much a cinematic notion. So all the sound that those characters generate or the world of those characters, like a car going past, a thing that's said, that's diegetic sound. That's the sound of the world. Non-diegetic sound then is, is scoring or narration sounds that's not from that world that perhaps those characters don't hear but what we hear as an audience so those two strands of sounds make up kind of a Pretty much, you know what we think of as, as cinema and, and and those sorts of things. So I find that really interesting. The annoying thing about diegetic is every time I write it in a word document, it comes up as diabetic. I don't know if you've noticed yeah, that. I've I, got
0: that typo right here in front of me. I almost said it. I almost said it. Yeah,
2: I <laughs> have di- diabetic and non-diabetic sound has turned up in so many um, kind of little when I'm kind of writing up some notes and things, and <laughs> so I always have to go back through and check that. It's um, it's, it's it's worth it noting. So I I love the notion of moving between those two states because it's pure mental in opera that you can do that. So, right, opera's crazy already because everyone is singing. That's already weird. So you have to ask your question, do they know they're singing? And if they know they're singing, is that diegetic? If, if, do, do they hear the music from the pit? Is that non-diegetic? Is that diegetic? We don't know. So going back to the reason, I, th- I guess opera has a little reference back if I think of Don Giovanni. There's a moment where Don Giovanni is eating his dinner and he turns to the conductor in the pit, in the theatre and says, play me something I recognise. You know, and and they play some music from the marriage figure and they play a few hits of the day and that's a very, like, breaking the fourth wall and, and and suddenly the music is diegetic. It's not It's not just an orchestra in a pit giving us non-diegetic music. It's part of Don Giovanni's world and he hears it and he responds. And I've always found that that's a crazy moment. like, it's a throwaway moment and, and Mozart's making a good gag. But I actually, I, for me, it, it has something more intriguing and more thrilling when it happens. We did... Um, you joined me for a performance of the Sloanes Opera a few years ago yeah. on accordion. Do you remember there was a little scene in the tiny wee snug bar in Sloan's? It's just for cello, accordion, and you guys were hidden behind the bar. Um, two guys carry their dead friend in for a last drink and it, and so they bring in the dead body and they turn to the jukebox which is a soprano and they put a pound in the jukebox and the soprano starts to sing and she sings a kind of old country song that their friend loved and so that music is diegetic isn't it that's part of the world of the of the lads the, the lads can hear the song and it kind of seduces them into singing so then they start to talk to one another and the music then becomes non-diegetic it's just scoring underneath suddenly they don't hear the music but you allow that jukebox to just come in and out of their conversation to move, I guess to be, let's, let's call it trans-diegetic then it moves from being diegetic to non-diegetic and vice versa that will always thrill me I just love it I think it does really crazy things to, to the notion of, of a song inside a song inside a song it just really tickles me it happens in a rock and horse winner. Rock and horse winner, as I said, there's a house that can whisper. We need more money. We need more money. We need more money. But only Paul can hear that sound. So, in a sense, this is, a, okay, this is, get, you could call that meta diegetic, right? It's a sound that the character thinks they can hear, but actually we know it's not a real sound, okay? So, but let's not, I'm going to get confused soon, so I'll keep it, I'll, we'll stop at, at sort of meta diegetic. But so the other characters can't hear this house, but it is whispering, so we hear it as part of the score, so it's non diegetic for them, it's diegetic for Paul, and it moves between the, thir- the two. The other thing, in Rockin' Horse, is that in this house they live in, there is a piano. And the mother sits down at the piano and she plays a chord and she hums along with that chord. And then she plays another chord and she hums along. So, in a sense, it is that piece of furniture, the piano, that is the kick into... Score and is the kick into singing, and I love that. And and of course, her son Paul comes and tries to interrupt the song and, and pulls the song over into his world, and she pulls it back angrily, and so forth. Like that. So that's so I've always found that wrestling between those states of sound and those sort of theatrical states of sound really intriguing.
4: Happy songs, any happy songs.
5: Mother, will you sing me a happy song? A
4: happy song. Stop Stop asking, Paul. (sighs) I'm sorry. I shouldn't have I just want you to smile, mother. oh no, is no, no, no.
2: I do it in rubble too. One of the things that should be nice is that there's a piano in this children's care home and everyone learns piano. You find out later that perhaps that piano is masking the sounds of anguish. And so there's a song where everybody does... Do you remember uh, Do you remember? You would kind of go one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five when you were playing a scale? So everybody's singing these scales on these imaginary pianos. And it's the, the piano teacher, Mrs Pearson, is um, teaching everyone to play piano. And so... Later in the opera, then Miss Pearson hears all the chorus all singing these numbers again and singing these these, these scale patterns that she while well, the piano. Is is going up in flames? I wonder. Am I? Is, have I probably moved over into spoiler territory now? But um, and I love that. But once again, that was a very um, diegetic sound. That that was those people were were learning how to play piano by using those numbers. We turn it into a set piece, and then later it becomes a different kind of. It becomes part of her
1: um, frenzied anguish at the end. So moving on to songs from the last page, uh, a songwriting project run by Chamber Music Scotland. Could you tell us a little bit about the inspiration and the idea behind this project? I'll
2: try. There may be some babbling. So it's an occupational (laughs) hazard that there may be some initial babbling because it's hard to sort of articulate these weird ideas you have. And this was a weird idea, I guess. I wanted to look at the very last lines of books. I love endings. I really like the last thing. I know that doesn't make sense, but I, I think I remember a few years ago, I sort of said... A conversation with the writer, Dennis Botter, and just some of the very last things he said for auction. I had found that really interesting, that kind of final, poignant moment. Um, and it was something... I was reading a book by a Scottish writer called Andrew Gregg. Andrew um, wrote the, a, a book called At the Lock, The Green Corrie. It's a gorgeous book about whiskey and fishing and friendship and landscape, you know, living in a beautiful part of a beautiful country. It's, it's a really lovely book. On the second last page, Andrew writes... Something along the lines of, and now it's time to close the book. And now it's time to go to sleep. That that kind of a vibe, it just starts to move into this very melancholy. And I realised I didn't want the book to end. So I took his last line, a very beautiful, very last line of the book, and I tried to just extend that out into like a three, four minute song. Using sort of quite straightforward songwriting techniques, repetition, find a hook, find a little bit of a structure, and just try to spin, spin that out a little bit longer. So this... Also was something I'd sort of tried in a few different iterations. I'd done a, little, a lovely little concert with the Hebrides Ensemble at the Edinburgh Book Festival, where we tried out a few with a few other composers. Once again, it was still very much in my mind when lockdown kicked in. It was the other kind of creative project that was sort of burning a hole in my pocket. So all through those restrictions, I was just going through my bookshelves and trying last lines of books and trying to turn them into songs, which is a weird hobby, but someone's got to do it. Ben, you know what I mean? And, and then it falls to me. It falls to me to be that guy. Um, and so coming out, I just wanted... I was like, why am I doing this every day? I, and so I was like, when lockdown is over and when there's something is restored, I'm going to take this out and I'm going to perform this at book festivals. So I have a little piano... Tr- it's me at the piano singing uh, with a, a violinist and a cellist. So we've got a little kind of Scottish celebration of literature and we're going around various really lovely book festivals... This year. It's a very, very slow tour. It started in Paisley in February and it finishes in Perthshire in October. The last lines are... They're, they're kind of quite downbeat as a rule because it's the end. But some of them do feel like they're springboarding off into another adventure. And some of them are very sort of poignant and 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 quite, um, you know, sad because it's the end. So there's... It, this concert that I that I take and tour and talk through, it is about wallowing, wallowing at the very end. And as a reader, um, God, this is when I have time to read. I, I feel like that has been a while. But as a reader, um, I would race, 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 race to the last page, and then suddenly, like, pull it back and go, "Hang on, you love this book, and it's nearly over. You idiot, you've been like, you've been rattling through the last ten pages of this, so you could finish it tonight, uh, and you're going to regret it." <laughs> <laughs> has there
0: been any endings that you found particularly challenging to work from?
2: Yeah, some of them I can't do. Some of them I just can't get the song. It's like I know somebody else could get it. We've commissioned a couple of. Um, uh, Deidre Gribben is commissioned to write one uh, to respond with a Gaelic uh, book. This, so she's working. So that's something we're going to premiere in Sky. Laurie Watson is is has been working on something, and she's going to do a last line of a book from her native part of the world in Borders, so she's working on something there. So so there are other people chipping away at, the, at at this sort of project, which is really lovely. And I do do some workshops, and I encourage people to do this kind of weird thing. It doesn't have to be the last line. Sometimes you can just open a book and find a line and try and make that line sing. It's a, really, it's a nice thing to do. I, I tried for ages. There's definitely, definitely a song at the very last line of Wuthering Heights. Uh, for the life of me, I can't find it. I, I i sometimes have managed half a song and then it just it just doesn't work but i know some i know somebody could do that so I really hope someone does uh
1: so there are performances throughout 2022 uh could you let our listeners know how and where they could find more information uh, on the project
2: yes well when i say yes I wonder do I mean yes I think I mean yes um go over like go over to the very fabulous chamber of music Scotland website. I mean, they're, they're, such, a cr- they're such a brilliant organisation anyway. You should, you should be there. It should be in your bookmarks, saved. It's a great thing. And, and, and my thanks to them, they've let me kind of pitch this notion of, I'm not a trained singer, I'm not a trained piano player, and I'm, and I'm out with a violin and cell. And they've allowed me to kind of question what chamber music actually is, and who should do it, what it can sound like. And, and, and so I found that really interesting to just be part of their little um, tribe. For a while, and uh, I've always been a fan, so it's just been nice to go out and, and sort of to try and, and join that. And sort of, I think the genre is literary chamber pop. That's what I'm calling it. So I'm sticking to that. So uh, it's a it's a small but growing genre. Um, so go, go and check out their website. We do have some a little bit of information about the project, but some of the book festivals haven't announced their seasons yet. But I know we will turn up, as I said, in Sky. Festival there. We will be in at uh, Wigtown Book Festival, uh, Portobello Book Festival, which is my home, my home turf. Uh, Blairgowrie's Bookmark Festival, and then we will be up at Wayward Festival Book Festival in Aberdeen. Um, there are others, and for the life of me, they've all escaped me. But we're still we're still putting the tour together, so there will be a few more, and at some point, we will have them all sort of centralised on the website there. So do check that out.
0: Brilliant. So have you got anything else that you would like to plug?
2: I don't think so. I, um... What have I got to plug? No, I don't think so. As I say, rubble has been something of a an a real... It's, it's felt like a real undertaking to get that to the finish line. And it literally only got to the finish line a couple of weeks ago because I was just so, um, preoccupied with it all the time that it was just something I could only sort of go and touch sometimes and come back to and have to give a little bit of time to digest. So I've promised my partner, that I'll take a break from writing the bigger things for a little bit and just be more present in the present tense. So I'm, <laughs> I'm going to do less of the, of the kind of big shows for a little while. Having said that, I might be developing a, a sort of a music theatre work at Dundee Rep next year. So that's something that's that's coming. For now, I'm enjoying being in a show as a little performer and having a show that doesn't just vanish after three performances and has gone forever. So, I, so I'm, I'm sort of embodying or inhabiting this Songs from the Last Page show at the minute. I'm really enjoying doing that. So that's my thing for the rest of the year.
0: Fantastic. Hopefully we'll catch it yeah. on your
1: elongated tour.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it's a very slow tour, as I said. I could nearly walk it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, so to play you out, we're going to listen to the song from the last page of Lanark. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about your approach to this text in particular?
2: how did I come about the song? There's something about that. That's the last page of Lanark is is just these words and they're capitalised. Um, you'll hear you'll hear them in a second. They're just capitalised on the very last page by itself. And even the fact that they're capitalised I think made me be slightly more strident with this one than some of the other songs which are a bit more introspective, a bit more melancholy. So there's something a bit more strident about this one. And it's a strange line. It's a strange few lines of text. You really... It really haunts you for a little bit longer than you first expect. There's a, there's a line I found in the middle of it that just says, time adds to land. Now, I think about what that line means a lot, but th- that for me was something I could spin into, feel like something of a repetitive chorus. And then there's a moment where the song hits, I suppose a bridge section, and I was able to just turn the song and do something slightly Different there, and just have a, a little moment of introspection before something more strident picks up again. Um, the recording is it's myself at the piano and Justina Yablonska on cello and Stuart Webster on violin, and we're just we're, it's not mixed yet. We've just been in the studio trying a few of these things out to see what an album of these things might sound like.
3: no My maps are out right of detail